0: I want to start off uh, asking you this question, and it's a question that I I feel I get butted up against a lot in my own life, is how would you describe what it means to be the people of God? We're all people sitting in a church here, um, and we are part of this church of God, you know, a common Christian slang, as we call ourselves, the children of God. But what does it really mean to be God's people? If you grew up like me, practically speaking, being God's people meant that you went to Awana's on Wednesday nights, you memorized one Bible verse a week, you didn't say words like stupid or butt until you were 16 years old. That's (laughs) true. That's true. Um, And anytime Bill Nye the science guy was on TV, you kind of like grunted or argued with him whenever you talked about the Big Bang Theory or 65 million years ago came into the conversation. That's what it meant to be the people of God is I'm positioned with these sorts of patterns of behavior and stuff like that. Um, And I'm sure, you know, for many of us, our theology has deepened beyond uh, those sorts of practices at this point, I hope. Uh, But still to this day, I think we might not always outright say it, but we still believe that being the people of God means that we live up to a certain pattern of behavior, we live up to some kind of expectation that is supposedly held for us, uh, or we believe that everything should be on an even keel because God's people don't have to deal with problems and stuff like that. The problem with this sort of thinking, however, is that when reality inevitably butts up against these sorts of ideas, it can turn our whole worldview out of whack and cause us to question what it really means to be the people of God. I, for one, take a lot of personal pride and put a lot of personal investment and self-worth into the idea that I can somehow learn enough or apply myself enough to fix a problem, that I can learn from mistakes and improve over time. And so when a situation arises that is more than I can handle, or if I make a mistake, especially one that I've made before in the past, I tend to get very, very frustrated, particularly at myself. I get mad because I'm a Christian. I'm a person of God. It's not supposed to be this way. It's supposed to be better. I'm supposed to be better. And then in many cases, I can even begin doubting. And I think this is true for a lot of us is we can even begin doubting if what God's doing is really taking a hold, or if God is really at work in our life, and maybe we can just be very confused and be like, God, I don't know what's going on. What are, are you even doing anything at all? Am I even one of your people at all? Because it's not working the way that I thought. And I think a lot of times we we walk along with these questions and these doubts, and we can kind of contain them because we're afraid to ask these things. We're ashamed to ask these things because we think people of God don't doubt people of God don't struggle with this sort of thing. But the problem with that is, if we don't ask, then we don't get answers. And our God is far too good and far too gracious to leave us in the dark about something as so key and crucial as our identity and who he has said that we are. You see, he has given us his word, and he's given us his spirit so that we can know who he is, how he operates, and who we are in him. And so as we proceed forward with this morning, I want us to kind of Come with an open-minded attitude of, I'm going to be asking this question. God, what does it mean for, be, for me to be one of your people? What does it mean for me to be your child? And to explore this question and gain, hopefully gain some answers, would you turn with me to the book of Zechariah? Uh, if you've never turned to the book of Zechariah before, it looks like this. It's spelled like that. Uh, it's really quite towards the end of the Old Testament. Uh, I know that we've kind of skipped uh, Haggai. If you were here last week, we went through Zephaniah, and we're kind of jumping ahead a little further, um, but Haggai and Zechariah really kind of work hand in hand, and I think it's very valuable of us to kind of start with the foundation that Zechariah lays, um, and Ryan will be able to teach on Haggai next week, so stay tuned for that. As you're turning there, I'll give you a little background information on what's going on in the world at the time of this book being written. See, Zechariah was one of the minor prophets. He was a prophet, meaning that he spoke on behalf of God. He was given messages by God That he instructed him to give to his people. And these are typically messages concerning instructions or promised blessings or warnings of judgment. Um, This is what the prophets in the Old Testament were called to do. They spoke on God's behalf. And Zechariah, in particular, is delivering these messages during a pretty tumultuous time in Israel's history. You see, Israel, after generations of disobedience and this pattern of rebellion and turning away from God had lasted for decades, if not centuries, God finally said, okay, enough is enough. If you want to go on without me, you can go on without me. And so they went on without God, and they ended up being conquered and exiled by the Babylonian Empire. We actually have a timeline of uh, how this played out throughout history. During these early years, there's kingdoms of Israel where they are united. They are their own sovereign nation. And then during this period of exile, they are forcibly taken out of their land, surrounded by a people that are not their own. They are surrounded by a language that is not their own in a land that is not their own and a bunch of people who are worshiping uh, gods that are not their own. And so, over these seven years of exile, Israel's spending a lot of time grieving. Not only are they grieving their circumstances and just the harsh plight that they're in, but they're also grieving their wrongdoing and all the mistakes that led them to this point in their existence. And it wasn't until at the end of these 70 years, when the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persian Empire, that they were finally allowed to go home. So Israel, at the time of Zechariah, is now back in their homeland, back in the land of Israel but having experienced such great loss and such a great identity crisis as well. They're still licking their wounds. They're still in mourning because of what they had just experienced. So it's at this time of them returning, beginning to rebuild their cities and rediscover what it means to be God's people and the nation of Israel that God brings this message through Zechariah. So let's read together, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. Reads like this, says, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. And I would highlight all of verse two. It says, The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors. Highlight that as well. Do not be like like your ancestors, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented. Highlight that as well. Then they repented. And said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. So straight out the gate, God is speaking through Zechariah, telling the people of Israel, Hey, decades back, your forefathers, your ancestors were walking far from me. They were maintaining these evil practices, and they were not seeking me out. And that's why they were put in exile. That's why they're not around today. But he says, don't be like them, return to me so that I can return to you and I can show you a better way than what they walked in. And in a miraculous plot twist, the people of God actually listened and they actually repented. I think this is the first time we've been going through these minor prophets that Israel has actually responded positively the first go around. And so they're actually saying, yes, we recognize our rebellion and our turning away from God and how it hurt us in the long run. We've experienced the exile. We've experienced being far from God and far from who and where he called us to be. We're ready to listen now. What way should we walk in? But immediately after this first message is kind of where Zechariah begins to get weird. Um Because over the next six chapters, Zechariah is going to retell a sequence of visions that God shows him while he sleeps. He's guided through these visions by a figure that he refers to as the angel of the Lord. And before we explore any further, I kind of want to set some some ground rules for us so we all have an understanding. First of all, I want to discuss this figure, the angel of the Lord. Um, There's a lot of speculation over the identity of this figure, who he really is. Some people say that he was just an angel, just a messenger on God's behalf who was guiding Zechariah. Some people say that it was God who was taking on like a physical form so that he could interact with Zechariah. Some people even say that it's an early incarnation of of Jesus, like an early precursor appearance of of Jesus. Um, And so there's all these theories And we can kind of go any which way and get bogged down by the details, but the important thing to know is that from here on out, whoever the angel of the Lord is, they're speaking the words of God. And so whatever message that they bring has a divine authority and a divine purpose. So we should listen as if it's God himself speaking to Zechariah and to us. The second thing I want to address is the fact that, yeah, Zechariah is really weird. A lot of uh, people say that this is actually probably one of the weirdest books in the Bible just for the imagery and the crazy visions that Zechariah gets. Because, you know, our dreams are weird, you know? I, I, I've, I've had multiple times where I've woken up from a crazy lucid dream and immediately written it down because it was just so bonkers I didn't want to forget it. And so we have strange dreams, and Zechariah had strange dreams. But it's sort of like walking through kind of an, a modern art exhibit. We kind of see this painting, and it's just like, three blue rectangles on a wall or like a wedge of cheese with hair glued to the top of it. And it's bizarre. It's very bizarre. I've seen both of those things in the same museum, in fact. Um, And we can look at it and be like, this looks like nonsense. What is this even about? Uh, But if you were to walk through an art exhibit with the artist who painted and sculpted anything in there, You could walk alongside, and they would tell you, yeah, this is what I was feeling. This is what I was trying to convey when I made this. This is the purpose. And so it might look absurd to us on the outside, but on the inside, God is telling a very purposeful message and narrative with these visions. So we're going to kind of breeze through them, uh, but there's um, just a purpose to each and every one, which we will visit uh, as we go through them. And the the order and layout of these visions is actually odd as well. It's kind of almost as odd as the images they contain. So there's a sequence of eight visions, and each one of them has a corresponding vision as well. So the first vision actually correlates to the last vision, the eighth vision. Likewise, the second one correlates to the seventh, the third to the sixth, and the fourth to the fifth. So you kind of see it funneling towards the center here. And that's because visions four and five are actually really the focal point which God wants to really focus in on. So we're going to—I'm going to paraphrase visions one, two, three, eight, seven, and six and tell you what they're meaning and what God is saying through them. But then when we get to four and five, we're really going to stop and pay close attention to what God has to say. So beginning in vision one, vision one is a vision of these four horsemen that are traveling across the land uh, to give a report to God. And as they return, they proclaim that there is peace and rest among all the nations. And then in vision eight, we have this image of four chariot riders that travel north, south, east, and west across the land and yet again return with a report of peace. And what God is saying here, he's saying this, is, this isn't a time now, but this is a time yet coming when all the nations and all the world will be at peace your enemies will be subdued and pacified and Israel will not experience the same opposition that they've been feeling recently. He's saying there's a coming time where God will establish his kingdom across the whole world and there will be perfect justice and perfect peace. Then in vision two is a vision of four horns and these four horns symbolize nations that have attacked and scattered Israel because of their disobedience. But in that same vision, those four horns are themselves scattered by four blacksmiths. And then along with that, vision seven depicts a woman sealed in a basket being carried away to Babylon. Like I said, dreams are weird. Um, the women in the basket were symbolic of the sins and wickedness of Israel. It was symbolic even of the sins that Israel had committed that had landed them in exile in Babylon in the first place. And what God is saying through these things, he's saying those four horns, these nations that have scattered you, they themselves will be scattered. And your sins and wickedness that landed you in a faraway land, we're keeping them there. We're casting these things away, sealing them far from you. He's saying, Israel, you're not going to walk in the same condition that you were before. Your enemies will not be here to oppress you or scatter you, and your sins will not be here in order to condemn you or lead me to send you away to a foreign land. You're not going to be under the same attack or under the same sins as before. Then in vision three, Zechariah sees someone measuring the city of Jerusalem, this restored Jerusalem, which is the capital city and the location of God's temple. And Zechariah asks what's going on, and God says that he's checking the length of the city because God plans on becoming the city's wall. He's going to become the city's defense. And then in vision six, God shows Zechariah a scroll flying throughout this rebuilt Jerusalem, symbolic of God's word and his instructions. And God explains that this scroll is covering the land and judging all those who act unjustly, swear falsely, or behave in a way that is in conflict with God's word. And so these two things are a promise of things yet to come in this new restored Israel, this new Jerusalem, that God had in mind for them, but they had yet to see, Planning that God is planning to be their protection, both from destruction on the outside and corruption on the inside. He's going to keep them and maintain them under his peace and under his word and care. So, so far, God's painting a really, really great picture of things yet to come, that they're going to have great peace, their enemies won't be there to scatter them, their sins won't be there to condemn them. God himself is going to be a shield around them and is going to judge them with his word to make sure that they are walking according to his heart. God doesn't give a timeline on when these things are going to happen but as we look in chapter 3 with the next vision, he's going to show us the means by which they're going to happen. So turn with me to chapter 3, the beginning of the centerpiece of all that God is showing Zechariah, and we're going to see how this vision plays out. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, reads like this. It says, then he showed me Joshua. Would you circle Joshua? It's a key character in this, in this vision. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. Highlight that. Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. And highlight this, I will put fine garments on you. I will put fine garments on you. Now before we proceed in in this vision, I really want to pause to discuss what we just witnessed because what we just witnessed was the message of the gospel. We have Joshua, who's this high priest. He's the appointed spiritual leader of Israel, mediator between them and God, and he's standing in God's presence wearing what they call filthy clothes. That's the gentle English version of it. The original text probably read something closer to he was dressed in clothes that were stained with his own excrement. He was, he was standing before God in a dirty diaper is kind of an easy way to look at it, uh, which I cannot imagine how that must feel I would be greatly ashamed and embarrassed if I, you know, had like sweat marks on my shirt standing before you right now. I don't know how it would feel to be in that condition before God. But even more so, in the Old Testament, there was this ceremonial ritual in order to enter into God's presence in the temple. You had to change clothes multiple times, wash your hands multiple times. There were so many rites and rituals in order to be considered worthy or clean enough to be in God's presence. And the Old Testament says, if you walked into God's presence in a manner that was unworthy, you risk being struck down because us in our imperfection cannot stand to be in the presence of God in his perfection. So Joshua is really in a shameful and dangerous position right now. And on the side, it says Satan's there accusing him. And the thing about this is I don't imagine Satan has to make anything up. He doesn't have to lie about Joshua's condition, it's standing right there before him. What I imagine the accusation sounded more like was just look at you. Look at the mess you've made. Look at the mess you're in. How could you stand before God looking like this? How could you stand before God in this condition? He's gonna condemn you. He's gonna cast you away from him because you're this mess and you're just gonna stay this mess. And I'm sure if we're honest with ourselves, we've heard something similar like that spoken to us or we've thought or believed these things about ourselves. I'm unqualified or unworthy to stand in God's presence. He's disappointed in me because of the mess that I've made of things, and I'm just going to stay this way, and so I can't be near him. But it says God doesn't condemn him. God silences the accusers, saying, I've chosen this people for myself. I've snatched them out of the fire. I've rescued them from destruction and condemnation. And then, as he turns to Joshua, he doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't accuse him. He doesn't even focus in on the mess that he's made. He says, remove these filthy clothes. He goes so far as to call them sins when he says, I've taken your sins from you. And not only have I erased those sins, have I erased that mess, but I have replaced it with fine garments, with cleanliness, with my righteousness so that you can stand before me. And that's the message of the gospel, that unworthy people Cannot stand in the presence of a a perfect God who is worthy of so much. By all accounts, we have every reason to be condemned and stand accused before him. But instead of that, instead of being condemned and accused and remaining unworthy, God makes us worthy by replacing our sins with his righteousness so that we can stand in his presence and nothing separates us from him. So that we can be like him reflecting the goodness that he gives by his grace for us, by choosing us, so that we can stand in his presence free from judgment, free from guilt, and free from shame, because he removes our mess and makes us worthy to be with him. And next, God gives the high priest Joshua even more grand promises of things to come. Let's jump down to verse 8 in the same chapter reads like this it says listen high priest joshua you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come i am going to bring my servant the branch highlight the branch for me it says see the stone i have set in front of joshua there are seven eyes on that one stone and i will engrave an inscription on it says the lord almighty and then highlight this last sentence as well and i will remove the sins of this land in a single day i will remove the sins of this land in a single day God is saying that that Joshua and what has just happened to him is just a glimpse of things yet to come. This symbolic of what God's going to do in the future when he sends the branch, his servant, to fulfill his word. That, That servant, the branch, is Jesus. Jesus is, he's called the branch because he's the one who is bearing the fruit of God's promises to redeem his people, to restore them and bring peace. By delivering salvation to all the world through his death and his resurrection. That's the work of Jesus on the cross, is bringing God's promises to fruition. God is telling the high priest, as well as Zechariah, as well as us, that this fruit of God's promises is on its way. And in the meantime, they ought to model themselves after the grace and righteousness that God has given. In in another way of looking at it is they're supposed to be imitators of Jesus as they anticipate Jesus' arrival, and it sounds very much like what we're called to do today. We're supposed to be modeled after this grace and this righteousness which God has freely given to us as we await Jesus' coming. And then we move to this very last vision, vision five. And we kind of explore deeper into what we just read uh, as far as how we ought to live in this grace and righteousness. In chapter four, verse two, reads like this. It says, he asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked to me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Circle Zerubbabel is another key component to this vision. Circle Zerubbabel and then highlight the statement that he makes not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So in this last vision, Zechariah sees these two olive trees, and they're connected by these channels, these pipes. They're connected to this lamp that is, this oil lamp that is actually pouring and funneling oil into the trees. It says that olive trees represented Israel's two leaders, Joshua, the high priest, their spiritual leader, and this character, Zerubbabel, who is the governor of Israel at the time. So he's their governing leader. So their spiritual leader and their governing leader are connected to this lamp, which is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And it says that this lamp is actually channeling oil into the trees, which I think is fascinating because it says these are olive trees, and olive trees is where we get olives, and olives is where we get olive Oil. And here we have a lamp that is pouring oil into trees, which we would consider a source of oil, as if to say, hey, that thing that you can bear and that thing that you produce in your life is going to come from this other source. It's being supplied to you by this lamp, it's being supplied to you and provided for you by the Holy Spirit. And so in this last vision, God is saying, look, the way that you ought to live is in a way where you are connected to my Holy Spirit, because you are not going to be able to bear fruit in your life by your own strength, by your own power, but only in what my Spirit provides. In order to walk in His ways, in order to see these promises fulfilled, His Spirit must remain at their center and be their strength. And I realize this is a very, very crazy sounding book, a lot of lucid visions, But I want us to kind of really look at the meaning behind what God is showing us and what he is promising to his people. Because God is speaking to a wayward, broken Israel and is promising them a coming day of peace and a coming day of divine covering and then gives them the means by which that's going to take place in the future through Jesus and through his spirit. And while much of this language in Zechariah is understood Uh, by Israel as referring to their current condition where God's going to rescue them from these oppressive nations and deliver them and establish them as their own people again. God is also speaking in an eternal sense to us today because we too walk in a lost and oftentimes oppressive world. And we have acted in ways that have pulled us further from God and they have hurt God's heart and us being apart from God has in turn hurt us as well. But just like Zechariah saw, God has sought after us in spite of our condition, in spite of our mess, and through Jesus, he takes away our sin so that we can stand in his presence and be free from condemnation, both now and forever. And not only that, but we have a hope that Jesus is returning to establish the kingdom of God across all the earth, and all the people and nations will be ruled under his perfect justice and experience his perfect peace. But, much like with Israel, God doesn't really give us a timeline on when that kingdom is, quote-unquote, arriving, and there's a very good reason for that. You see, later on in the book, Israel kind of responded to Zechariah and all these visions saying, hey, these promises and this coming nation and kingdom of God, this is great, but uh, are you saying this because it's going to happen, like, tomorrow or next week or next year? Can we stop mourning now? Because they were still grieving over their condition and the mess that they'd made of themselves they're saying hey are these promises are going to be fulfilled in our lifetime and Zechariah answers almost kind of like flipping the script on them says I don't know are they because his thing is you're still grieving over your condition you're still focused on how you stand accused and over the condemnation that you felt but God is saying I've taken that from you and I've given you a different way to be that you don't have to be identified by your mess anymore you're identified by the salvation that I bring, the grace that I show, and the spirit that I have given to you so that you can know my heart and walk in my ways. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, says very much a similar thing when he says, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. And people question, like, hey, what are the signs of God's kingdom showing up? And Jesus says, don't talk about it like, like that. Don't talk about it like it's, oh, here it is, or there it is, it's, it's coming. He says this, the kingdom of God is right now in your midst. Some translations even say the kingdom of God is within you. You carry the kingdom of God because you carry the salvation of Jesus and the spirit of God with you. So God's kingdom isn't a matter of there or then or a time or a place because we have been given salvation right now. We have been given God's spirit right now, and we have a purposeful way in which God has called us to live right now. God's promises don't kick in once we're off this earth because we get to see his kingdom unfold in our daily lives as we walk in a way that reveals more of God's heart to us and we put his grace on display. That's also how we get to see God's kingdom expand because a kingdom is just a land or a people over which God is king or anyone is king. And so if we have received the grace of God and he is our God, then that means that we are walking, talking pieces of God's kingdom. And we are living out God's promises of peace in us every single day because we no longer stand accused and we no longer stand condemned. We stand full of grace and connected to his spirit. And he says, walk in the ways that my spirit provides, in the strength and the actions that my spirit provides, so that you can see my kingdom unfold. He's given us this life and this salvation, just like Israel, because he is calling us to live according to something different than our old ways. All our old sins, all our old vices, all the things that kind of put us in a spiritual and personal exile and he's calling us to live like the people of God, the people that he has made us to be. Ephesians 4 puts it like this. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. It says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He's saying walk in this way because God isn't something that's far away. His kingdom and his calling and his hope isn't something that is distant or in the nondescript future. It is here in all things right now because he dwells within us. God has called us to know him through the salvation and the relationship that he offers and offers to identify us by this calling that we have been selected for grace. We have been shown mercy and compassion and have had these, the filth removed from us so that we can stand in the presence of almighty God. And then we can walk in a way that reflects him to others so that they can know him as well. They can taste and see his goodness, and we can see the kingdom of God grow in our lifetimes. We are the kingdom of God. We live out his example of love and his grace so that we can witness his promises for us, see them come to fruition through Jesus and the Spirit within us. It's not something that we can do ourselves either. Just like God says, not by strength or by power, but by my Spirit. This can only happen when we we walk according to God's grace, and when we receive what the spirit provides, I'm very guilty of trying to make it on my own or earning the most improved award by proving to God somehow that I can get on without his help, that I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to make the same mistake again. I got it. Take the training wheels off. But that's not the relationship that we're designed for. We're designed for a relationship and, and, and we hate it because it feels like dependency, but it's nurturing. It's nurturing. Because we're not riding a bike and asking God to take off the training wheels. We are trees planted in the ground. That if we are uprooted from that source of life, which is God, then we will no longer grow, we will no longer bear fruit, we will wither, and we will hurt for it. We're called to remain rooted, connected to the Spirit of God, connected to who He is and His heart, so that we can exhibit it in our life and see His promises unfold in our life as well. Paul puts it this way in the book of Romans in chapter 8, verse 6. It'll be up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. It says, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. So his spirit has to remain at the center of all of it for us. And desiring to keep our focus on drawing nearer to him, remaining connected to him and identified by what he has done, we can know him more and live according to his word and his spirit. And we will be supplied with everything that we need in order to live this life as his people. And we will get to see the promises that he has made to his people fulfilled. So at the beginning I asked, what does it mean to be the people of God? And in the long run, it doesn't mean upholding a certain expectation or a grade point average. It doesn't mean just changing your behavior so that you can show improvement over time. And it doesn't mean being spared the hardships that come with living in a broken world. Ultimately, if Zechariah has shown us anything, I would say that being the people of God means three things. Number one, as the people of God, we are rescued from sin and wrath and freely given the grace of God. See, that's our new identity. We're no longer subject to wrath. We're no longer bound to sin. We are rescued from that and now recipients of his grace. Secondly, we are given the spirit of God who enables us to walk in our new identity in Christ. And the thing that Jesus has given to us, the salvation and rescue that we have, is now maintained by the Holy Spirit. And all our life is supplied by remaining connected to the spirit of God which dwells within us. And then lastly is this. Is that we have a hope in the present because of his presence and his promises. Just like with Israel, we've been promised a great many things that Jesus is coming, that God's kingdom will be established over all the earth, and that he will make all things new. And that's our hope. Not only that he's going to do this in the future, but that he is working in our hearts here and right now. That God is with us right now, and his presence will carry us through every season of life showing us more of himself and proving his faithfulness by delivering on every promise. So it's all centered on what God has done. We receive it, and then we just walk in it. We imitate it. The grace that he's given to us, we walk in grace towards others, and we remember that there's grace for ourselves. We don't have to live as those accused. Ultimately, we do all this so that we can draw nearer to our Savior and draw nearer to our Father. Like with Israel, we've been given incredible promises about the future that God has in store. And we we can often find ourselves, I know I find myself wondering like, all right, when's it gonna happen? When's God gonna show up and pull through for me? But I think, and and, and thinking through this entire series of God's unmistakable voice and going through these minor prophets, I think the greatest promise to me and, and possibly one of the greatest promises that he has made throughout all scripture is this, when he says to his people, you shall be my people and I shall be your God. That's what it means to be God's people, is that we are who he says that we are, and he remains our God throughout all things, and we just stay connected to that, and we abide in him and abide in his presence and his grace for us. See, that's a promise that he fulfills every single day. So the question for us, much like the question for Israel, isn't a matter of when is it going to happen, where is it going to happen, But are we going to live and believe and be a people that see that happen? Are we going to witness it? God doesn't want us to miss the promises and the peace and the grace that he has provided. So the question is, are we going to walk in a manner that allows us to see those promises come to fruition? Are we going to be a people who see God in action and at work in everyday circumstances for us? Because when we do, we will get to see God as he truly is is because our hope and our identity are set in what god has said and done we are his people because of his rescue and because of his great love and everything that he has spoken we believe will come to pass as it is coming to pass even right now so that we can see his kingdom come in our lives here and now and we can abide in his presence and under his covering and grace both today and forever So my challenge to you today is, will you walk in that? Will you receive the fine garments, the clean clothes, the salvation and the grace that God has made for us that re-identifies us as one of his, as the people that he has chosen and as the people that he will supply all that we need and show us his grace throughout every single day in our life.